So you come to a passage of scripture that um, is a pretty familiar passage of scripture if you've been in church for some time. Uh, we'll be asking you to turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses um, 16, actually I'll pick up at verse 13, and we'll be going through the chief passages, um, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. As you get a chance to read um, scripture at times, sometimes it's like I, I heard that before. I don't, I don't know how many sermons you've heard on John 3.16 before. You know, it's like, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Or how many Christmas uh, messages have you heard um, through your time? How many times have you heard a message on the crucifixion or the resurrection? And, and sometimes what can happen is that they become so familiar to you that you almost overlook it. So I'm going to ask you this morning, because this is another familiar passage, to deep dive with me into this passage. I want you to hear God speak to you again about what occurred with his son. I want you to think this morning as well, as we come to this passage, that this is an extraordinary scene. Uh, the question really is, can Jesus save can Jesus rescue? That's really what's at stake here. Um, is Jesus, by giving, not giving in to these temptations, missing out on a better life? Is he, is he missing out on some hope or benefit that is there? Is Jesus, when he refuses to please himself, actually doing something good? Of course, we would say yes. But in our society today, we believe that pleasing ourselves is best, and we believe that the opportunities for personal glory and honor are best. I don't want you to miss the fact that Jesus is being tested as well whether he trusts his Father and whether he trusts the Word. He's been tempted by Satan, but ultimately what is now coming down is, do you trust God? And, and in many ways, I, I think that's exactly where we are today. You know, as I seek to think about how oftentimes I seek to please myself, to make myself feel happy, to give in to my passions, to give in to my desires. And perhaps you sit here and you're giving in to your lust, or you're giving in to your self-pity, or maybe you've given in to your fears, maybe you've given in to your depression. Maybe you've given into some type of substance. Have you given in to that thing? And then what you thought you had control of starts to control you. And that's what tends to happen with sin and all these moral compromises that come from the fact that we come to a place where we say, I need something more than what you're offering me, God. So I want you to see the scene here. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And I, I need you to understand that the baptism that John is offering is a baptism of repentance, that you are acknowledging that you are a sinner and you are going into the waters of baptism to come up to prepare yourself for the Messiah that is to come. So, so when John is seeing Jesus come, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this makes no sense to him that I'm going to be baptizing you. I should be baptized by you. But Jesus said this in verse 15, but Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. 
I need you to realize that Jesus Christ did not simply come here to die on a cross. If Jesus came down here on Friday, died on a cross on Friday, rose a rent again from the dead on Sunday, we would not be saved. That Jesus Christ's death on the cross is essential, but he needed a righteous life because we need a righteous life to be accredited to our account. And he lived the righteous life from the womb to the grave for you so that can be credited to you. So when he says that I need all righteousness to be fulfilled, he needs to go down every path that we would have had to assume. And he needed to live it righteously. So he said this, he said, let it be fulfilling all righteousness. And then he consented and hear this. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were open to him and he saw the spirit of God descending on him like a dove. It's interesting that the Spirit of God, the paraclete, the comforter, the counselor, is coming upon him right now, and he comes upon him in the, in the image of a dove, and a dove is this, this symbol of purity, and he comes down upon Jesus, and he is there right upon Jesus, the symbol of purity, but it was also a symbol, if you remember from the Old Testament, that the dove was often used in Old Testament sacrifices, so, so as Jesus Christ is there and the dove is coming upon him, it's symbolizing the purity of Christ, but it's also symbolizing the work that Christ is going to be doing by dying a cross, a sacrifice for us. And the, and the Holy Spirit comes upon him and rests upon him, this paraclete, this counselor, this comforter. And then what do we see? And coming to rest on him in verse 17, and behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The father's voice is heard from heaven. This is my loved son. He is the beloved son in essence. The father's passion for his son is so infinite. I want you to hear that the father loves his son with an infinite love because that love that he loved his son with an infinite love is the love that he loves believers today. The same love that he loved his son is the same love that he pours upon you if you know Christ today. How the voice of the father said, this is my beloved son. And he says, not only is he beloved, but he is my son. He is the, he's God. He's divine. And he says, in whom I am well pleased. What a confirmation. What the highest of all compliments, the highest of all praise. I am pleased with you. Not just pleased, I am well pleased. So I want you to see the scene here that on the context of Jesus' temptation, he is just coming out of the baptism. He has just had the dove, the Holy Spirit, come upon him. He has heard the voice from God in heaven. We see the Trinity at work right here, right now. And immediately, the chapter break is bad here. It gives you the impression that there's a break here. There is no break. As soon as it happens, then, verse 4, one of chapter four, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. I want you to know that Jesus was led into the wilderness to be tempted. I want you to know that trials and temptations at times are part of God's plan for your life. God does not tempt you. 
He does not. James says that he does not tempt you. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't lead you into times of testing and where you may be tempted. He's not going to leave you, though. And so, so Jesus is sitting here, and he's not only with the Holy Spirit, he's being led by the Spirit, and Luke actually says he is full of the Spirit, which is so important. Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. And he is here living by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he is going to show us how we need to do the same. So, he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So vital for us today to remind ourselves of the fact that um, we need to be led by God. I want you to see the two characters that are going to be at work here. We have the devil, Satan, or the tempter. And he is the chief enemy of God. He's the chief enemy of man as well. He's called Satan in the scriptures. We see in Isaiah chapter 14, he is a fallen angel. He is the chief fallen angels. A number of angels fell with him. He is called the false witness. He is called the malicious accuser. Satan is wicked in his personality. He hates all things. He is evil. Satan is the source of all the evil and all the wickedness that we have in this world. He is man's worst enemy. He is tireless in his efforts to to uproot you. He is a liar. He is a deceiver. He is a murderer. R.C. Sproul has an interesting quote about, our, about Satan. He says this, Don't underestimate the power of Satan, for he's stronger, smarter, and more deceptive than you are, which is interesting. I don't want you to be overwhelmed, though. The beauty of the cross is that Satan is a defeated foe. He is defeated And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, he was defeated and his eternal punishment will be in an eternity in hell. Yet, for a moment in time, he is at loose here in this world. The second character I need you to hear this morning is the person, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the second person of the Trinity. He's fully God and fully man. He, he left heaven at the will of the Father. And the plan was that he was going to live an obedient human life. And he was going to become the atoning sacrifice for sins on the cross at Calvary. And that he would be resurrected. He is co-equal, co-substantial, co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. But he was human. Don't miss this. Jesus was human. He had human weaknesses and human limitations. He had, he had failings or frail, frailties that we all have. He needed to eat. He needed to sleep. He needed to drink. He was not some superhuman that had no, none of these limitations. He had the normal human t- limitations that we have. Remind yourself of that. He was virgin born. He had a human body. He had a mind that had to learn. Just like you and I have to learn. We have to learn from Scripture. He needed to learn Scripture. He didn't just all of a sudden come out of the womb quoting Scripture. He learned it. He was taught it. He became obedient step by step by step. He had a human soul. He had human emotions, which you saw oftentimes as you read this. And people around him knew he was human. There's some... some, um, heresies that are out there that believe that Jesus only appeared to be human or he was mostly human. No, he was fully human and fully God. 
I want you to think about this as well before we look at this passage. There's a significant difference between temptations and desires. The Bible calls righteousness, a righteous life, you must achieve three things. You must obey God's law. You must seek to bring glory and honor to God. And you must be motivated from faith and love for God. Those three things are important. Keep the law, obey it perfectly. Do it for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom. And then the third thing is that you're doing it from faith and love. You have to have all three. And so what happens is this, is sin is the exact opposite of each one of those three. Instead of obedience, sin is disobedience. Instead of for the glory of God and the advance of his kingdom, it is for my self-glory. And instead of faith and love, it is about unbelief and hatred. And so those three things are challenged. And so every one of us live with this disobedience, this desire for self-glory, and this unbelief that's in our hearts. And our sin is deep. I need you to know that. Our sin is not just what we do externally. It's what we do internally or what we believe internally. It's deep. Our sin began in this world by Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve, our foreparents, heard the word of God. They heard the law. They heard about the glory of God. And they were called to believe God and love him, but they chose not to. And what happened is that this rebellion that happened within them they intentionally inside wanted to do something different and they believed something that was just clearly irrational. They gave in to their core emotion. They gave in to their core desire to disobey God, to seek glory for themselves and to not believe. And the effects of all sin is this. I need you to hear this. The effects of all sin is this. Guilt, punishment, and corruption. There's guilt that is placed on all of humanity. From the very womb, we are put under Adam's guilt. Guilt means that we have broken the law. We have failed. Not only are we put under the guilt, but we are put under punishment. There's a curse that is upon us, all of humanity. There's a curse that is upon our creation because of our sin. And then there's corruption within It's not just what I do, it's what I am. Our society believes that our greatest problem is intellectual, so we educate people. Our society believes that our problem is external and societal, so we want to change programs and get new programs in society. Or our society believes our problem is physical, so we come up with new medications. And and you can't educate out sin. You cannot create programs that are going to deal with sin, and you cannot find a medication that is going to deal with sin. So, God has given us the only answer. What is our only hope? We need a Savior. One who's going to bear our guilt. One who's going to take our punishment. One who is going to give us a righteousness, not only in life, but create righteousness for men. That's what we need. But what happens if the Savior fails? What happens if this Savior sins? Then we have no hope. So we see a battle at the cross. There is no doubt. 
We see a battle throughout Christ's life, there is no doubt, but there is a battle right at the beginning of his earthly ministry to say, is he going to obey God's word? Is he going to bring glory and honor to God and advance his kingdom? And is he going to show faith in God and love for God despite the trials? That's the story. I want you to be amazed with the fact that this Christ can save you. I want you to be amazed by the fact that this Christ can rescue you. I want you to be amazed by this fact that this Christ is here for you today. So I want you to enter into the wilderness with me. I want you to see the spiritual battle that is happening right now, or what happened 2,000 years ago. And I want you to be in awe of what your Savior did for you. So Father, as we move to this passage... I pray that you would help us to be amazed at what your son did. Father, we have this tendency to look at passages and it's like, yeah, I got that. Help us to marvel at what Christ did for us. Help us to marvel at what you did for us. Help us to marvel at what your spirit did for us and is doing for us even right now. So open our eyes to see your word. Help us to open our eyes to see your son and help us to bring glory and honor to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Then Jesus, verse 1, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I guess he really was. It's interesting that the wilderness is this um, place of um, brokenness. This wilderness is a scene where the Israelites had been in the wilderness, in the desert, for many, many years. Do you remember how many years? Forty years they spent in the wilderness. I want you to see the parallels that tend to happen in this. Adam was in a perfect garden with a lovely wife and all the food that he could ask for, and he failed. Jesus was alone in a wilderness and he succeeded. The parallels between Adam and Jesus. I want you to see the parallel between Israel and Jesus. Israel had just been brought out of bondage and has been brought into this wilderness. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And for 40 years, they failed to trust God. Jesus symbolically goes into the, not symbolically, literally went into the wilderness. He spent symbolizing 40 years, he did 40 days without food. I want you to see that Jesus Christ is fully human. I looked up uh, what it would take and what would happen to a human body after 40 days of not eating. You get faint, some dizziness that can happen, your blood pressure drops, lowering heart rate, weakness, dehydration the pain, the abdominal pain, low potassium, your body temperature fluctuates, and Jesus is in the wilderness alone, wild animals, darkness that is around him, and he is in this abode, and he is being tempted by Satan several times over this time, but there are three dramatic temptations that he hits him with. Let's look at the first one, verse 3. And the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. 
It's interesting with this first temptation. This first temptation is this appeal to Jesus to deal with um, provision. Will you provide for me, God? Or maybe I need to figure out some other level of provision. You know, what's wrong with wanting food? What's wrong with running bread? There's nothing wrong with this. But it's interesting to me that he begins the debate with Christ and the attack of Christ with this word, if. If you are the Son of God. Now, you can take this in one of two ways. He could be challenging Christ's identity and saying, well, if you are the Son of God. Or he could be saying, you know what, since you are the Son of God, either one I think works. I think he's doing since you are the Son of God. He's kind of trying to lift Christ up. He says, well, since you are the Son of God, you have the ability to deal with this. But then what Satan does, as he does with all of temptation, he is appealing to the earthly rather than the spiritual. He's appealing to the physical rather than the eternal. So what he does is he says to Jesus, you have the power, fix your problem. Isn't that us today? We have a problem and we figure we're going to fix it doesn't matter what Jesus says. doesn't matter what the Word says. I'm going to do what I want to do. Jesus was tempted, therefore, to use his power as God to alleviate his suffering as a human being. Well, how many times do I do that? Now, I don't have the power of God, but how many times do I take things into my own hands to try to fix the suffering I go through without ever consulting God? How many times do you do that? I find it interesting that Jesus, when he was tempted in this way, that prove your, hum, prove your divinity, fix this problem, solve your earthly problem, Jesus says, but it is written. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He appeals to a passage from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 3, and Moses has just taken these, these Israelites in the desert. And if you remember the wilderness, as they're in the wilderness, God has rescued them. He's rescued them with ten plagues. He's rescued them by the Red Sea. And now what they're doing is complaining about food. And they're complaining about water. And they just continue to complain and grumble. And God gives them this. And but he says, you, I humbled you. And I let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know. Nor did your fathers know that he might make you know what man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus was not saying, and Moses was not saying that we should eat. What he is saying is this. If I make food and earthly provisions more important than God, I'm going to fail. Jesus didn't fall to Satan's temptation. I find it interesting Watch this. What does he say? He says, it is written, what's the word? Man does not live by bread alone. Jesus did not appeal to his divinity there. He appealed to his humanity. He went back and said, as a human being, I'm trusting my father. We need to do the same. The word assured him. It assured him that he was a son. Just before, 40 days earlier, he had heard, you are my beloved son. His, God's word assured him. God's word provided him confidence. God's word provided him direction. 
God's word led him into the wilderness. God's plan was that he needed, was going to be without food. So Jesus says, I trust you, God. I believe your word. I trust that you will take care of me. And God, when you want to feed me, you will. My life is in your what? Your hands. How many times do we take things into our hands? We pray about something once or twice and it doesn't happen, so then what do we do? <laughs> I guess I got to fix it, right? And Jesus said, no. So Satan hits him with the second temptation, which is interesting. Verse 5. Then the devil took him to a holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. So he took Jesus to this um, pinnacle of the temple. And um, at this point, some accounts were that it would be about 500 feet above the Kidron Valley. So this is huge. And he takes him up there, and and what Satan does is interesting to me. Satan says that, Jesus, you're resting on God's word. I got you. You're resting on it. But he cunningly tries to find something in God's word. He says, I'm going to get you. And he goes to Psalm 91, and he accurately quotes Psalm 91, but he pulls it out of the context. And that's what Satan will do for you and for me. You have to know the word. You not only have to know it, you need to know the word. You need to know the context. You need to know why it's written. You need to not pull it out of the context. You need to put it within the context. And Jesus says you're you're quoting it accurately, but you're interpreting it terribly. (laughs) So important. When in essence, Satan is saying is this, prove God's word. Prove that you are his son jump. See, if you jump, guess what? You're actually going to be showing that you have faith in God. So step out in faith. Does that sound familiar today? Step out in faith. Prove God's word. Jump down and God will display his glory to you. Prove it to yourself. Prove it to others. Prove it to everyone in the world. And Jesus said this, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. The Israelites have been given all of these wonderful things, but they doubted God, and then they tested him at Massa and at Mirabah. See, Satan wanted to tempt God's belief or Christ's belief in God's truth. And Jesus was able to go back to the word day after day. Do you think actually he had his scrolls with him out in the wilderness? I don't know, but I doubt it. So how was Jesus able to quote these passages? He needed to memorize them. He needed to meditate on them. And if the perfect son of God needed to read God's word, meditate on God's word, memorize God's word, how about you and me? you must be sitting in a group that is going to teach you the word. 
You must be sitting under the word, whether it's sermons or Sunday school or Bible studies, you must be under the word because if Jesus had to use the word to deal with the assault of Satan, how in the world are sinful humanity going to do it without the resource of the word? Most church programs today do very little to uh, give people the word. They entertain them, but they don't exhort them. I pray that that would not be here at the chapel. I pray that you would be hearing the word and hearing that you need to know it and to live it. Third temptation. And again, verse 8. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Just a small little thing, Jesus. Not a big deal. Just one little bow of the knee, I'll give you everything. Now some wonder if Jesus, act, I'm sorry, if Satan actually had the ability to do this, and he did. If you remember, Adam was given dominion over this world, but he forfeited that dominion when he fell into sin. And then the dominion of this world, at least on some level, was given to Satan. He's called the prince of this world, the prince of this age. So Satan had the ability to give to Jesus this thing, if Jesus bowed his knee. And I wonder how many times are we tempted to fall to the temptation of power as well. This intoxicating splendor. We see this extraordinary vision. I can have all of this authority. I can have this majesty, this power, this wonder, this success, this beauty. I can have it all. Isn't that what all these commercials are about today? And if you sell your soul, you can have everything. That's what the appeal is. The glory, the success, the impressive bodies, the rich in lifestyles. Satan is basically saying, I'll give it to you. In fact, he may not understand all of the cross implications, but he is in essence saying, I'll give you the crown without the cross. How many of us do the same? So what do we learn from this passage Jesus responds to him. I find it interesting that now Jesus says, that's enough, Satan. Be gone. The authoritative word, be gone. And then he goes back to the word, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord, your God, and serve him only. And where did Satan go? Satan left. James says this, that if you resist the devil, he will what? He will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Weep and wail and mourn. Turn your joy into into mourning and your laughter into joy. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. So Jesus Christ was not a sinner by any stretch of the imagination, but he resisted Satan. Satan's claims against God's provision, Satan's claims against God's protection, Satan's claims against God's power, he went and attacked it with the very word of God. I want you to know this, that Satan's strategy is the same for you and me. He seeks to distract you, then he seeks to deceive you, And he wants you to have doubt. He wants you to doubt the word of God. 
He wants you to doubt that the word of God is good and helpful. Today, we were talking about this in our class. Today, the world believes that this is a document that is not vital for you. It won't help you. It's not relevant. Satan wants you to doubt the very word of God, but then Satan wants you to doubt the character of God. He wants you to believe that God is not trustworthy, that he's not caring for you, that he doesn't love you. And then what he wants you to doubt is doubt God's authority, that when God says don't, we are called not to. That's Satan's strategy. He's been doing that since the beginning. He works in stealth. He works covertly. He wants you to believe that you can handle the situation. You remember the disciples on the night Jesus was betrayed? He went to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I am praying for you, Satan. I mean, praying for you, Peter. And what did Peter do? Peter didn't pray. He did not fulfill God's command. In the garden, you remember, in the garden, Jesus had to come to them and say, pray, 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 and they were asleep as Satan was just lurking there to attack them. How's your prayer life? His attack is slow. It's insidious. He wants you to become more and more comfortable with the dangerous environment that you're in. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. He wants to hinder your relationship with God's people. He wants to destroy you. If he can get you to think wrongly and believe wrongly, you will feel certain ways and you will act wrongly. So he wants to get in your ear. He wants to get into your mind. He wants to get into your heart so that he can invade your life. And then what he does is this. When you fall, and many of us do, now what do we do? We feel badly. We feel guilty. And so now it starts to infuse rage and anger and resentment and bitterness even to God. So he's gotten you to fall, and now he's gotten you to run away from God. I want you to see the benefits of Jesus' temptation here. Theologians call it two different types of obedience that Jesus fulfilled. The first one is active obedience. Active obedience is what Christ just did for you. He lived a sinless and righteous life, a perfect life. He fulfilled the obedience to the law. He did it for the glory of God and in the advance of his kingdom, and he did it with belief and trust and love in his Father. He fulfilled that triad that we can't. Jesus did that for you. That's called active obedience. And then the second part of his commission was passive obedience, and that's what he did by dying on a cross for you. He took your punishment upon himself, if you trust him. He took your guilt upon himself, and he bore the weight of God's anger for your sin upon him. So what's our need? Our need is we deserve to die as a penalty for our sin, but Christ became our sacrifice for our sins. We deserve to bear God's wrath against our sin, but Christ fully satisfied the wrath of God for our sins. We we are separated from God because of our sin, but Christ removed that barrier between humanity and God by becoming the reconciler. And we're in bondage to our sin and to the kingdom of Satan, but Christ brought us back with his precious blood. So this morning, I, I pray that you would look anew to what Christ did for you. I pray that you would see that Christ did what we could never do. He obeyed the law perfectly. I pray that you would see that he did what we could not do. He fulfilled all the righteous requirements of the law. 
He was the spotless, sinless lamb who took your penalty. And what God did was he took his anger and wrath for your brokenness upon his son. And son died for you. Today, we were similarly tempted by Satan. I shouldn't say similarly. We are tempted by Satan. It's not similar to what Christ went through. But you and I are going to be tempted by Satan every day. He's going to get you to try to doubt God's word and doubt God's character and doubt God's authority. You must resist him by the resources God, Christ had. He was led by the Spirit. He was filled by the word. And he trusted his Father. Will you do the same today? Let's pray. So Lord, the song that we sang before said, though Satan tempts us with despair and tells us of the guilt within, upward we look and see him there who made an end to all our sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted what? Free. God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Father, your son began his earthly ministry by hearing the pronouncement of your blessing upon him that you loved him as your beloved son. He had the dove coming upon him that symbolized the purity. And then immediately after that, Satan says, my kingdom is in trouble and he went to war. And your son battled him. I find it interesting that your son didn't battle him in his divine ability. No, he battled him just like every one of us in this room have to battle, Satan. By your word, by your spirit, trusting you. So help us to trust you today. So Lord, if there are people here that don't know Christ, and they are tempted to despair because they are really under the guilt and the weight of that guilt and that condemnation and punishment, I pray that they would look to the Savior who is able to save the only one that is the one that can rescue them from the deepest sin and for those of us that do know him help us to have awe help us to have wonder help us to praise him to honor him to sing hallelujah to him in jesus name we pray amen